it had two components to it originally when it was written. One was that Prop 98 would be, uh, you know, a floor beyond which you wouldn't you wouldn't go below. That really was kind of the main goal. But then there was a secondary provision in Prop 98 in the original version that people wanted to see happen, which is that we would we would continue to grow every year until we got into the top 10 in the nation in what we spend per pupil. Welcome back to Adventures in Ed Funding, the podcast series presented by CASBO, the California Association of School Business Officials, where we trek together through the surprisingly fascinating world of schools, money, and California's future. I'm Paul Richmond, and I'll be your guide. In this episode, special guest Kevin Gordon, president of Capital Advisors, helps us explore the mother of all education ballot measures, Proposition 98. Prop 98 just barely passed by less than 1% when it was on the state ballot in 1988. We'll explore what led up to it and the impact, both good and bad, it still has on the amount of resources kids in our local schools receive. It's known for being a highly complicated finance formula, so I promise Kevin is also going to take our 60-second challenge and break down the basic mechanics of it for us. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to ask Kevin to share some about why he has devoted so much of his professional career to understanding and explaining school finance issues and why we should all care about them. Kevin has been a leader at two statewide education associations and has long been regarded as one of the leading budget advocates in the state, fighting to make sure public schools get the resources they should. The thing about school funding is that there are different challenges every single year, and it's as diverse as shifts in the economy. So every time there are you know, movement in the economy from one year to the next, there's different dynamics that affect how much money we may or may not get in a budget, all the politics around the good fight for school funding in that particular year. And then the other issue is, is that school districts, I mean, whether we like it or not, are almost utterly dependent on the state for school finance. Oftentimes I'll hear in a given community, well, uh, the problem is, is too few of the people in a given community have actual children in the system. So why should they care? Well, they should care because we want an educated community. We want ed- educated electorate, for goodness sakes. Um, education's the great equalizer, too, in terms of today a lot of talk about social inequity. The great equalizer is education. So there's a variety of different reasons to pay attention, especially uh, when you are dead last in the nation and what we spend per kid, basically. I mean, we've just been pathetic in our funding. And it would be one thing, I don't know that I would pay a lot of attention to it if we were just consistently in the top 10. I wouldn't worry from one year to the next, well, what are we spending on schools? But when you look at performance data and you look at spending data, there is a correlation. And I think we need to do something about it. So that's why the average person should really care. On this show, we're big believers in the axiom that to get where you want to go, you need to understand where you've been. That's why this episode focuses on some of the basics about the history of school funding in California. Think of these as Ed Funding's formative years. And certainly Proposition 98 is one of the biggest influences. But let's begin with some context 
in the 1960s and 1970s that led up to it. So a lot of people don't realize this. Um, there actually used to be pure local control in that property taxes is where we got most of our money, almost all of our money, and that a local school district would, would um, vote for a budget that would then drive what your property tax rates are. And if the community thought that that school board had overreached and was overtaxing them, they would throw them out. And there was this great balance between actual accountability for the school board, educational results, and the investment you put into it. This locally driven approach kept California among the top states in school funding, but it was far from perfect. There's two major things that drive school funding uh, over the course of history. One has been court cases, civil rights cases, that said, hey, look, it, it might be swell to let every community raise whatever they want for education. But when you do that, you have incredible inequalities from one community to another. And what we need to do is sort of protect that if you, you're a family that's in the, the famous uh, analogy was Baldwin Park, that if you tax yourself on the wealth of the real estate in Baldwin Park property taxes, um, you're not going to be able to raise, and you tax at the same rate that they do in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills is going to raise a whole lot more money because there's a lot more property wealth in Beverly Hills. That's not fair. How do we equalize that? And so that's what drove an effort to try to create a system that that kind of controlled all districts across the state. So there was somewhat even uh, investment uh, in education. They never quite perfected that all that well. At the same time the courts sought to equalize funding across communities, the national economy stalled, inflation rose, and a powerful wave of anti-tax sentiment swept across the state in the late 1970s. This culminated with the second major influencer of funding in California's schools, statewide ballot measures. The first was Proposition 13 in 1978, It dramatically cut local property tax revenues and forced the state to take over the main responsibility for funding schools. We'll delve more into that proposition in an upcoming episode. Suffice to say that soon after 1978, California's per-student funding fell into a precipitous slide. So for the average person, they don't realize that there was a time in the 60s when we were tops in the nation and what we spent per kid. And guess what? Our academic achievement was was the best in the nation. It was really a model. And then as we did this disinvestment and we had this attitude about uh, about no new taxes and not sort of keeping up and being competitive, we lost our place. And that's what's happened over time. So you start with that premise and you move forward to a very, to maybe a generation or two of an anti-tax sentiment. One year, uh, we were giving rebates back. The then governor sent rebate checks back to taxpayers. Of, I don't know, something like a billion dollars going back to taxpayers. At a time when we were really not doing well in school funding, and a whole lot of other problems were exploding. There were health care issues starting to emerge. It, was, it wasn't that the state could afford it, but it was a great political stunt. Now, you know, folks on the right, people that are more conservative might disagree with me, but I thought it was just an utter waste of money because you got your $12 check 
and though we were not funding adequately our public schools. And we started to see this gradual decline over time of this anti-tax sentiment. And even Jerry Brown was kind of guilty of it. When he became governor the first time around, he ran on a no-tax pledge. He said, well, I'm not going to be raising. And of course, he skirted it by saying, I won't be raising general taxes, which he got to then define the way he wanted to because there were a few tax increases. But generally speaking, there weren't any big tax increases. So everybody was saying, well, we have to get along with what's in the cookie jar over a cup, you know, two or three decades of that kind of mentality. It means that the fights we have over school finance are only about the revenue that already exists. And how do you get revenue from one source, but you're not growing the overall source of revenues that would go into public education in a way that makes us competitive. And that's, that's the real problem, is that we've never been, we just totally fallen behind. By 1988, the public was frustrated by the severe cuts to education that resulted from Prop 13 and its aftermath. A movement launched to amend the state's constitution to require the legislature and governor to allocate at least a certain amount of funding for K-12 schools and community colleges each year, the famous minimum guarantee of Proposition 98. So what the ed community was frustrated by, the education committee, was that from one year to the next, we were always lobbying so hard just for the cost of living increase and making sure they were covering new students, and we were tired of it. It's like, why do we have to argue for this fundamental so let's get a constitutional right to that fundamental, and then we can argue about getting more funding beyond that. Prop 98 is notorious for being complex. So we asked Kevin if he was game to take our 60-second challenge, 60 seconds to explain, in a nutshell, how the formula works. Sure, sure. It's way more simple than people make it out to be. Okay, ready, go. It Basically, the premise of it was... Let's do this basic guarantee for schools, but let's make the calculation of the guarantee the greater of two possibilities. The first would be, let's have it just be 40% of the state's general fund. So if the general fund's doing really good, lots of taxes are coming into the state, the state's getting doing really well, we just want 40% of that. And it had some prox- approximation to what we we're spending with some extra investment, a little bit modest extra investment. So 40%. The second test, test two, so 40% is test one. The second test would be whatever K-14 education got in the prior year adjusted for inflation, and they had a little index. What's the gauge of inflation? The one that we use is per capita personal income. If that's going up, you know, great. So PCPI and... Uh, enrollment growth or decline, depending on what's going on with uh, student growth. Then you look at those two two possibilities. Whichever gives you more is the one you go with. That's it. Well done. And you had one second to spare. So it sounds simple enough so far, right? I think what a lot of folks were thinking at the time when this was framed, it had two components to it originally when it was written. Uh, one was that Prop 98 would be uh, you know, a floor beyond which you wouldn't, you know, uh, you wouldn't go below. And, um, and, and so that, that really was kind of the main goal. But then there was a secondary provision in Prop 98 in the original version that people wanted to see happen, which is that we would, we would continue to grow every year until we got into the top 10 in the nation 
in what we spend per pupil. In theory, a good and noble idea. The problem is, as soon as it got implemented, the legislature was always trying to figure out what does it take just to do the minimum? And once they do the minimum, check the box, we're done. And, and, and that's what happened. It became a funding cap instead of a funding floor. Really a problem. One of the things that was the challenge with a lot of rank-and-file lawmakers on Prop 98 when it got passed, they were really irritated that you were telling them, you've got to allocate this percentage of the budget to schools. But it didn't add a penny of new resources. There was no tax increase in Prop 98. Another big problem, Prop 98 was amended at the ballot box just two years after it passed, when the state hit bumpy financial times. The legislature basically said, look it, if you don't make an adjustment with a follow-up ballot measure, which ended up being Prop 111, that, that makes Prop 98 not gobble up all the money and only be a, you know, a gain every year and not have some kind of a downswitch for a bad economy, then we, the legislature, are going to suspend it every single year, which is in the Constitution. There's an ability by a two-thirds vote of both houses to suspend Prop 98. And basically, they said, we're going to suspend it every single year in perpetuity unless you fix it. So the Ed community and the governor at the time, George McMajian, went sort of hand-in-glove together to the voters, and they fixed Prop 98 so it has a downswitch. The irony is, is that we're one of the only state programs that you would fund that in a bad economy automatically cuts school funding below where it would otherwise be. One of the authors of Prop 98, John Mockler, once quipped that the original Proposition 98 formula was like a Picasso painting, but the passage of Prop 111 amounted to someone spray painting over it. Now, in, with Prop 111 we did a test three. Test three is whatever K-14 schools got in the prior year, adjusted for per capita changes in general fund. So this is the thing where if the general fund is taking a dive, then schools funding, the Prop 98 guarantee would be adjusted downward until the economy gets better again. And then the idea is you keep track of the difference and you try to put us back to where we would have been. Unfortunately, Prop 111 began 30 years of what the state's legislative analysts later referred to as, quote, a plethora of tests and rules that govern the minimum guarantee. I'm going to read some from the analyst's report now, because it shows just how much more paint got sprayed onto that original Picasso. So, Tommy, how about a little mood music, if you will? Altogether, the minimum guarantee is now governed by eight interacting formulas and nearly a dozen different inputs. Even with a set of eight formulas, the legislature has found the formulas unresponsive to the budget realities of the day, with barely a year passing when the state has not adjusted the formulas in some way. These adjustments have involved excluding revenue from the Proposition 98 calculations to fund earthquake relief, excluding sales tax revenue to support realignment of certain state programs, shifting property tax revenues to school and community college districts to provide more state general fund for the rest of the budget, shifting property tax revenues away from school and community college districts to backfill local governments for the loss of other revenue streams, and counting certain Prop 98 funds as loans to avoid mid-year cuts to schools while still balancing the state budget the next year. (sighs) 
the mother of all education propositions, had fallen subject to a lot of interpretations and what we call manipulations, where people really torture themselves to figure out ways around Prop 98, have really pretty much undermined it. It can be whatever somebody wants it to be at the Capitol building. So it's, it, it's not the guard against disinvestment that a lot of people thought it would be. So now the conversation about where we go with school funding, what ought we be funding schools in terms of dollar amounts, um, has taken off despite Prop 98. So it's there. It, it's important that we know the mechanics of it because every time the budget writers at the Capitol building sort of figure out what they have to do at a minimum, it creates sort of the baseline. And then we say, what do we need beyond that? And then we look at it. And including right now, I mean, the legislative analyst and the governor are queuing up budgets that look at what is our minimum under the Prop 98 guarantee. And I can tell you that in the budget year for the year that we're in the middle of, we basically got just the Prop 98 minimum guarantee. We didn't get anything over it except that the governor did pay a big chunk of money of general fund money to pay down those retirement obligations that I think are so important. That was a big victory that he spent $3.15 billion to help on some of the retirement costs at school districts. But the Prop 98 guarantee, we weren't funded beyond that minimum. And uh, so that's kind of an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, I'm someone who grew up thinking Prop 98 was the ballot measure that saved California's schools. I remember my mom had a Yes on 98 bumper sticker on the back of her Ford Thunderbird. And I remember teachers and parents who campaigned zealously for it. And I remember as a newbie working at the state capitol in the early 1990s, believing that despite several lean economic years, Prop 98 had at least kept things from getting worse for schools. But Kevin remains one of the friendly but firm skeptics. I always looked at it as, hold on a second, if we look back over the last couple of decades that we've had Prop 98, we know, because we've seen the analysis, that it's basically only kept us whole for inflation and, and enrollment growth, the, the increase in new kids for the years that we had it. So actually, we're no better off than where we were because what we were getting from one year to the next was only a, about enough to stay up with inflation, which means you're standing still. If you get to pay for the things next year that you paid for last year, even though they've gone up in price, and you helped me cover that obligation, you're just standing still. You're not making meaningful progress in your competitiveness with the rest of the nation. So Prop 98 never did achieve that aspirational goal that originally had. So that that's part of the problem. So Prop 98, but because it is in the Constitution as that minimum funding obligation that we have to schools, people say, okay, well, we, got, we have to check the box and say that we honored that. Okay, but a good number of people would argue that even with its flaws, things would be a lot worse for our schools if we didn't have Prop 98, right? I actually think they could be better. The reason why I always felt that way is because in every year where we were, we were you know, lobbying, we, we, one year to the next, we would lobby on the state budget. This is before Prop 98. We would look at a governor's budget, and for both Republicans and Democrats, we'd be advocates for opening up that budget and seeing in their proposal that they were actually going to fund COLA and they were going to fund enrollment growth for new kids. And under Republicans and Democrats alike, that was always sort of their benchmark of, am I treating schools well? But then- you get to governors like Gray Davis, who called himself the education governor, and he wanted to do something really bold. 
Well, if we hadn't had Prop 98 as a minimum guarantee, it's like, okay, what's bold, Governor? What, what are you going to invest? And it challenges them to do more. And I just don't think their conscience would have let them cut schools to the depth that Prop 98 gave them permission to do. I told you there was a down switch on Prop 98. In some years, it was billions of dollars below what we would otherwise get. And what the legislature and the governor did, they would, without blinking an eye, they would give us that lower amount of money. And then they'd go and have a press conference and say, whatever I'm going to do, it's going to abide by Prop 98. Well, yeah, they were abiding by Prop 98's down switch. And it was like nothing to brag about because it was actually shorting schools by, in some cases, billions of dollars. And it was pretty, pretty frustrating to be able to explain to people, we're getting hurt but they are honoring Prop 98 because Prop 98 allowed those kinds of reductions. It's very, very frustrating. I think we would be better off, frankly, today with, had we not had Prop 98 than we'd otherwise be because there, it's political behavior to want to, how do we put more in? And I think they would have been really not interested in reducing school funding by the amount that happened in some ways by our own hand under Prop 98. And that's not sacrilege for you to say that? <laughs> oh, no. I think the LAO did their analysis two years ago that showed over the life of the ballot measure that basically the only thing we've gotten is inflation. I mean, that's just not good. Yeah. And a lot of pain on the way. I mean, a lot of difficult budget cuts when times were really bad. I just think we would have done marginally better um, than just staying even with inflation over the last 30 years had we not had this easy target, they could just say, okay, we're just going to do Prop 98, and we're not going to do anything more than that. So given all of this, should we stop paying so much attention to Prop 98 and look beyond? The re only reason why you can't really ignore it is because it is a con it's part of the Constitution. It's a minimum that, uh, that the state's got to abide by. What we really should be doing is talking about what, what's the right investment in public education? Should we be making that? And there is that conversation going on. It's sort of irrespective of Prop 98. And that there is a growing realization that Prop 98 was always intended to be this minimum, this bare minimum, but that it doesn't define what ought to be school funding. There's going to be a conversation like we've never had before in 2020. And if for some reason the conversation doesn't take place, it'll be an incredibly lost opportunity. So we're hopeful that, that we're going to move the needle finally on pro-people investment. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're going to leave things this week on that note of hope. A hearty thanks to our guest, Kevin Gordon, president of Capital Advisors, for trekking through some of California's school funding history with us. Next episode, we'll hear the perspective of someone who served in the legislature when that history was being written. For more information about Proposition 98, including a link to the report by the State Legislative Analyst Office and other great resources, visit our show notes on the casbo.org website. I also recommend the excellent documentary from 2004, about California school funding by award-winning journalist John Merrow called From First to Worst. Our series is produced by the California Association of School Business Officials. Molly Schlange is the president. Molly McGee-Hewitt is the CEO and executive director. Mixing, editing, and theme music for our show are all provided by Tommy Dunbar. Original art by 2B Communications. And I'm your trusty guide, Paul Richmond. 
Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review and help get the word out about our new show.